Thank you. So today's Bible reading comes from Mark 1, 14 to 45. After John was put in prison, Jesus went went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they proclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Uh, Welcome to the second week of Uncontainable God. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark. As I mentioned last week, we're going through the Gospel of Mark pretty quickly, and we're kind of flying over chapters at a time. Uh, and that's in contrast to how we looked at the Gospel of John, which we only looked at a few verses at a time. So looking high level and looking low level have their pros and cons. So when we look at Mark today at a high level, we might feel like, or at least I feel like, there was a lot going on in the passage. Mark is generally like this really fast-paced book. He uses um, the word immediately a lot like jesus immediately went here or the disciples immediately did this it makes the book feel like it's a whole bunch of events jammed together and because we're going through it at a really high level covering chapters at a time we're going to feel like 
we're going to feel that even more so. And in the sermon today, I won't be diving too much into the nitty-gritty because we've just got a big amount of stuff to cover. So if you have questions, of course, hit me up in Q&A. But what I hope happens by going through it at a high level is that we see the story of Jesus from a different perspective and that we get surprised by what's going on. Because after being a Christian for a while, it's easy to not be surprised anymore, especially by the Gospels, because we're so familiar with them. And there's some great things that come with familiarity, like um, understanding and comfort, but there's downsides as well, like laziness or assumptions. Like we assume we basically know all there is to know about the Gospels or even all there is to know about God himself. But you and I definitely don't know all there is to know about God. We've probably just stopped looking. So today's sermon, and probably the whole series, is going to be looking at something familiar, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing new for us to see about God in in this gospel. So I hope you'll you'll listen with a bit of curiosity and uh, kind of wonder what new things you might learn. All right, so let me pray and then we'll jump in. Lord God, please open our eyes today to see wonderful things out of your word. Make us excited by things we already knew but had forgotten. Uh, Make us surprised by things that we haven't seen before. And make us love your son all the more. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So it starts off. After John the Baptist is arrested, Jesus' ministry begins. It's kind of like a changing of the guard. We saw last week that John came preaching that God himself was on the way. So prepare for him and repent. Jesus in verses 14 to 15, it says, comes preaching the gospel of God. And immediately, because we're familiar with the word gospel, we assume he means the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's not because Jesus hasn't died and risen yet. And he's still about three years away from that. And in the Gospel of Mark, he's still about eight chapters away from telling the disciples that that's actually what he's come to do. So we think the Gospel is Jesus dying and rising, but what's Jesus preaching as the, as the Gospel in Mark chapter 1? Verse 15 says that the Gospel that Jesus was preaching is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. So John's message last week was that God was coming. Jesus' message is that God is here. So what's that mean for our understanding of the gospel? I can't dive into it too much because of time, Um, but it means that our familiar understanding of what the gospel is is too narrow to say that the gospel is that Jesus died and rose to save you is not wrong. It's it's definitely true, but it's only a tiny sliver of what the gospel actually is. And it's not even the best part of what the gospel is. So we need to broaden our understanding of the gospel. So if you're interested more in how that kind of connects with how Jesus dying and rising, the gospel of Jesus dying and rising connects to this gospel that Jesus is preaching here, hit me in Q&A. It's, it's a bit interesting, but uh, a bit too much of a tangent for right now. Okay. 
But the thing to keep in mind is that what Jesus was preaching at this point is not that he was going to die and rise. In fact, we figure out later on that he actively is not preaching that. The message of the gospel at this time was that God's coming has arrived and God is here. And this gospel seems to be a massive hit. Right from the start, from verse 16, Jesus passes alongside the Sea of Galilee and he sees two fishermen, Simon and Andrew, and he calls them. And then immediately they leave their nets, their livelihood, the way that they kept themselves fed, and they follow him. Mark's pretty light on details about how it all happened, but the point he's he's making is that, wow, it's amazing. This gospel is something else. At a word, two men would give up their lives and their means of looking after their families to follow this guy. And a few few verses on, Mark doubles down on this. He sees another two brothers, James and John, and he calls them too. And immediately, not only do they leave their nets, but they leave their boat as well. And not only do they leave their boat, but they leave their father as well. And seemingly, without even saying goodbye, they just hop out of the boat and follow Jesus. So that's pretty surprising for us now that you just kind of abandon things like family like that. And it's even more surprising to the hearers from 2,000 years ago. And it all kind of underlines how urgent and how powerful this gospel is. Then straight away from verse 21, they go into the city of Capernaum and he starts to teach, presumably this same message. And he goes into the synagogues and when he teaches them, they're all astonished. And then suddenly a man with an unclean spirit shows up in the synagogue. And Jesus casts the spirit out. And it's strange that he tells the spirit to be silent about his identity, but maybe that's nothing. And then they're even more amazed, his teaching, and they start to buzz in, they start to like buzz amongst themselves in their heads. What's going on? This guy has this really powerful gospel, this really powerful good news, which is amazing on its own, but then he's also got this authority to drive out demons by his command, just his words. And the driving out of demons was meant to be a sign of the return of God. So they're starting maybe to put these things together. So he's got powerful demons. He's got powerful teachings. He's driving out demons. And so his fame spreads throughout the region. And then immediately he leaves the synagogue and enters the house of two of his new disciples. And he heals their mother-in-law just by touching their hand. He preaches powerfully. He drives out demons. He heals people. This Jesus guy and his message is revolutionary. That's the picture that we're getting. And so it's no surprise that at sunset, as word spreads around and as the Sabbath ends and people are allowed to kind of come out, at their literal first opportunity, the whole city packs into the house that Jesus is staying in. And they bring all their sick and they bring all their demon-possessed. And Jesus heals them and casts out their demons. And then he tells those demons not to speak to anyone else about it as well. But maybe that's nothing. And if the whole city's there, this healing and demon driving out is probably happening well into the night. So it's interesting to see that at the next day, he, he wouldn't sleep in, but he'd rise really early while it was still night 
and then go somewhere solitary to pray. There's only three times in Mark where it mentions that Jesus prays. And two of the times it doesn't tell us what he prays for. Just that he does pray. So it kind of leaves us to wonder about what he's praying for. He could be thanking God about the success of his ministry, all the demons that he's driving out, all the people that he's healing. But almost like Mark is picturing him as trying to get away from all of that, just for a little while. And there's a similar feel to the second and third time he prays as well. So maybe something's happening there. We don't exactly know. But it seems he needs some distance, but his disciples chase after him and find him, and then he's surrounded again. And then he refocuses on his mission, and he says, let's set out to preach. That's what I'm here for. And then he goes out and preaches and drives demons out all throughout the region. And in the final section of this passage, Mark zooms into one particular person with leprosy. He was moved by a situation, and he heals this guy as well. There's probably a lot of assumptions with people with leprosy. If you remember back into our Leviticus series, uh, people with certain types of skin diseases were considered unclean. And coming into contact with them meant that you also risked uncleanliness. So this man, if he lived by the Levitical laws, he would probably have to live away from everyone else outside of society. Probably had to wear torn clothes, and he probably had to declare that he was unclean to everyone around him. But Jesus, it says, filled with compassion. Um, I noticed in the version that Amy read, um, it says, um, with indignancy, which is kind of the opposite of compassion almost. Uh, which is a really interesting point that you can ask me in Q&A about. But I'm going to go with compassion. Jesus, filled with compassion, doesn't avoid him, but touches him and heals him. But this isn't unusual because Mark's already told us he's healed at least one city full of people. And there's no real indication of time in between these two events. So he might have healed like other cities, other towns full of people. But Mark singles out this one story of this one guy's healing. So what's different about it? From verse 43, it says that Jesus charges him sternly. He hasn't commanded anything on anyone else that he's healed. He's only commanded the demons. And Jesus gives this guy the same command, basically, that he gives the demons. Say nothing about this. And to him, he says, go show yourself to the priests and offer the offerings that you need to offer at the temple so you can return to normal life, but don't say anything about this. But where the demons obey Jesus, or at least it's implied that they obey Jesus, this guy seems to actively ignore Jesus, who just healed him. And it's a bit hard to tell if that's good or bad, because on one hand, he's like, he's going out and he's telling people about Jesus, and we think that's good, that's, that's instinctively good, right? But at the same time, he's also ignored Jesus' command. And the end result is that Jesus could no longer enter towns but had to stay in isolated parts, in desolate parts of the region because so many people were flocking to him. So to some extent, that all just feels like a random selection of stories. And they kind of are. They're like a snapshot of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But... This, this final account of this person with leprosy 
gives us one perspective that we can use to pull this chapter together through. There's lots of ways we can look at this chapter, but this is one um, really interesting way I think we can look at this chapter. The opening of the chapter of, Mark, of this chapter of Mark seems to be filled with success, right? Jesus is preaching, he's driving out demons, he's healing people, and people are flocking to him from every corner of Galilee and filling up houses wherever he is. But as we went along, you might have also picked up an undercurrent that not everything's quite right. And this story of the person with leprosy, I think, confirms it. Notice how the man with leprosy, implicitly, if you know the Levitical law, which now we do after going through Leviticus, this man with leprosy begins on the outside of society. He's the one that's rejected. He's the one that's unacceptable. He's the one that can't enter the cities. But he ends up being healed, and he becomes the bearer of good news. But at the same time, Jesus, the healer and the original bearer of good news, um, is disobeyed. He gives him really clear instructions, and he actively disobeys him. And through that action, Jesus, who began on the inside, ends up on the outside. He has to be, Jesus now has to be in the desolate places where the leper can now go free in the city. And we can trace that undercurrent backwards even further. Maybe when he goes out to pray, he's not thanking God for the success of his ministry, but maybe he's praying about the chaos of it all. All the people are crowding around him, and, for the, fir- and the first time they taught in the synagogue, from the first time he taught in the synagogue to when he was at Simon's house, he was just surrounded by people. But it doesn't seem like they were there to hear the gospel of God. It doesn't seem like they were there to repent and believe. They're there because he can heal and drive out demons. So they bring the sick to him. They bring out the demon-possessed to him. And then even back right at the start of the passage, Jesus' ministry begins in the context of John's arrest. John was the forerunner of Jesus. Of, John was the forerunner of Jesus, which is what we saw in last week's passage. And John began with great success as well. People flocked to him. Jerusalem, all the regional people flocked to him to be baptized. But it ends up in his arrest. It ends up in his death. And if Jesus' forerunner walks down that path it maybe foreshadows a similar path for Jesus as well. So while all of this looks successful in our eyes, all throughout it, there's a hint that the success of Jesus' ministry is mixed with some heaviness or some burden. Like the cost of healing the man with leprosy was mixed with the burden. So how can Jesus' ministry then possibly succeed? Because it seems like the more successful it is, the more more burdened he becomes. Maybe this tells us that we've misunderstood Jesus' ministry. Or maybe we've oversimplified his ministry. Maybe we come to the Gospels imagining that Jesus' ministry is pretty smooth until he gets to the cross. Then it's all pain. Or maybe even that his ministry is all done at the cross. But I think the picture that we get of his ministry in this chapter and kind of all throughout Mark as well is that his ministry is bigger than that. The cross is at the centre of it and it all relies on it, 
but the parts around it aren't unimportant. In verse 39, it tells us that he didn't just come to tell everyone that God was here, but also to enact it, to enact the presence of God by driving out demons, verse 39. And by extension, healing as well. And that's not something small, I don't think. Who knows how many thousands of people were healed in Jesus' ministry to that time? Thousands would have been healed. Thousands would have had demons driven out while he was preaching and displaying the coming of the kingdom of God. But probably not all repented. Probably not all believed. Probably most didn't believe. But Jesus still did it. He still did it as an important part of his ministry. You can see throughout the passage that his success in doing it is what hindered it as well. And maybe that's why he commands the demons and the person of leprosy, with leprosy, to be silent. To try and contain the fullness of his identity. Because the more people he healed, the more people flocked to him, the more restricted he was but his ministry couldn't be contained. Out of compassion, he would heal more and more people. Out of compassion, he would even heal the leper who would disobey him and cause him to bear some of the social social isolation that he freed the leper from. So when we fly over Mark 1 at a very high level, we surprisingly get a more nuanced picture of Jesus' ministry. The cross is at the centre of it, and we'll find that out later. That's like the the cornerstone of his ministry. But it's not all of his ministry. Jesus doesn't just come here to take care of your sins. He doesn't just care about your sins and bear the burden of your sins. But he also, happily it seems, and willingly it seems, bears your other burdens. He cares for the leper's leprosy. He cares for the mother-in-law's fever. And he cares for your burden too, whatever your burden is. Tiredness from sleepless nights with children. Mental health issues from overworking. Depression from lockdowns. Lack of self-confidence. The passage today shows that Jesus cared. And he's willing to bear the burden of healing. And that makes Jesus' ministry all the more personal. And that makes something like prayer really special. It's kind of nice that Mark left Jesus' prayer unsaid. didn't tell us what he prayed. He could have prayed for anything. And presumably God would have heard it and cared about it. This isn't the point of that section. This isn't why Mark tells us that. This isn't why Mark doesn't tell us what he prays. But it's just a nice parallel for our own lives. It leaves us open to pray for anything. And it tells us that Jesus will care about it and that he'll bear those burdens. We don't exactly know when healing will come, like it came for the mother-in-law or for the leper. Maybe it will come in this life. Maybe it will come in the next life. But for the follower of Jesus, it will come. So what I think this passage is doing for us today is pushing us to expand our imagining of Jesus' ministry. 
The cross is central, but it's more than the cross. Jesus cares for your sins, but he cares for more than your sins. He cares for all those little things around it. He cares for your burdens, cares for your sickness and all those things. And he's moved with compassion to heal us from that. And that's what he does. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son who was full of compassion and full of care. Thank you that he has taken the burden of our sins. Um, but not only that, but that he carries and is willing to carry the burden of all. He's willing to carry all of our burdens. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we can um, follow and trust in someone like him. We thank you that he's your son and he's now our king. We pray that you'll make us good followers of him. We pray that you'll help us to turn to him in prayer and unload our burdens, knowing that he cares for them. And we pray that you'll make us more like him over time. Amen. John, back up to you. Some Q&A. We've got quite a number of questions coming in already. I thought there wouldn't be many questions from Mark because it's like a common gospel. But it's nice. I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, well, the first question, um, appropriately, somebody wanted to know what is the difference between indignant and compassion? Yeah. So, um, so the the so the New Testament that we have kind of comes from um, a whole bunch of uh, copies of the original writing. Right, we don't have the original; just got a bunch of copies, and some of those copies have like tiny differences. Um, like in this passage, one copy will say indignant, one copy will say compassion. Um, this is probably one of the more major differences, actually. All the other differences are, are way smaller than this. Um, and so there's like a bit, so you might see from translation to translation, depending on what, um, what new uh, manuscripts are discovered over time, that little words will change, but the, the meaning doesn't change. So if it was that Jesus was indignant, then you kind of in the context of things, if you, you kind of try and wonder what he was indignant about, maybe he was indignant that this person um, had to suffer through leprosy, and so he's willing to heal him. Um, but the, the version I went with, which was compassion, which seems to be the more um, supported in the different manuscripts, is just like his compassion on him in his leprosy. So the difference is just like a difference from the a few variants in the manuscripts. Um, but it doesn't really change the... It kind of gives an interesting angle on how Jesus is feeling, but it doesn't really change the meaning of the passage. Um, yeah, so that's the difference between indignant versus compassion. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's, that's one of the major things. So if you think of that, that's one of the biggest differences around uh, in the different manuscripts. You can imagine how small and how accurate the copies would have are. So, yeah. uh, next person uh, was thanking you for myself, I guess, and says, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near or at hand, do you think he's saying that the kingdom has actually arrived or just about to arrive? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is really, it's really hard. I think he's saying that, so there's, you've probably heard before that there's this kind of like now and not yet tension in a lot of what we write. Mostly you find that in Paul's um, writings, but in the Gospels as well. Um, and so the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is 
basically tied up with Jesus, right? The kingdom of God is tied up with the king, and the king is Jesus. Um, so if the king is here, then the kingdom is here as well. Um, to, to what extent is it here is really the question. So it's um, Jesus hasn't fully exerted his reign over this world, but he's done it in part, which is in part to do with the driving out of demons, with the healing. So he's saying, he's showing his power over this world um, in saying that he's arrived. So he hasn't fully exerted his power yet. That will happen at the new heavens and the new earth when, when that happens. Uh, but I think, I think it's saying it's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like you can reach out and touch it. It's kind of saying I'm here. Mm-hmm. The, the king is here. Yeah. And I guess the next question is sort of answered. Somebody wants to know what the kingdom of God is. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the kingdom of God is like, it, it's like, there, there's a lot, oh, actually, there's a lot to say about it. Um, so on a, on a kind of simple level, the kingdom of God is just the area of the world or of the universe or whatever that God has domain over um, and exerts his power over. Um, so when, so in some sense, everything is under God's control. When the, the Gospels kind of talk about it, it's more about the return of God. If you remember from last week's sermon, um, it was towards the end of Israel's um, uh, what's the word existence uh, when they were being judged and all that sort of stuff. They were um, God kind of went away from them. He left them. They had sinned so much. They rejected him. They've forgotten his laws. They've forgotten compassion. All that. And so he's he'd left them. And so the idea of the kingdom of God from that perspective is that one day God will come back. And so if the king comes back, the kingdom will come back. And so that's probably more the angle of the kingdom of God in the gospel. And so when Jesus drives out demons, the idea is that uh, when God leaves, there's chaos. Demons come, sickness comes, all this sort of stuff. Um, But when he returns, he brings order. So he brings healing. He drives out demons. Demons don't like Demons don't have a place in his kingdom, so he drives them out. So um, it's almost like a reverse of Eden, right? So if you remember creation, uh, chaotic and everything, and then God comes in and he sorts everything out. Here's the place for the sun. Here's the place for the moon. Here's the land. Here's the sea and it's order. And in that order, um, he dwells with his people. So that's his kingdom. And then it gets destroyed and it's chaos. When God leaves, there's chaos. But when Jesus comes back, there's order again. And he starts to separate this is not where the demons go this is not where sickness is and that's the that's kind of an element of the kingdom of god there's heaps more to it but yeah. that's, i think that's the the main thing to yeah, put today, yeah. these questions are seem to be <laughs> interconnected as well uh so yeah in the past it seems like there used to be a lot of demon possessions uh, back in jesus time compared to now how can we mm. tell the difference between someone with a mental illness or a black oh wow what a I question um it's okay so I, I think from the bible's perspective and i guess from and therefore from god's perspective there's not a huge separation between the spiritual and the physical in that god didn't like kind of create a soul or a spirit and then put it in a body um he, he just created a human a human is like body plus spirit plus all these other things, emotions, whatever. 
Uh, so to some extent, it's all connected. So, and, and you get more of that idea from um, the Bible than in our culture. In our culture, we like to separate stuff. We like to systematize. This is mental health. This is physical health. This is relational health, whatever, social health. Uh, but in the Bible, it's all connected, right? So you're, to some extent, you can't be um, physically unwell, yet spiritually perfectly well. Like they're connected. If there's some sickness, that that's a sign that there's some spiritual unhealth as well. There's some mental and all that sort of thing. So that's why, like, as we exist now, until all things are made new, like we're not going to experience perfect health and perfect whatever. We're, we're always, even if we're Christian, we could be sick or we could have mental illness or whatever because we just haven't got that whole restoration of the whole person yet. Like our spiritual, like spiritually we're guaranteed our salvation and we know where we're heading, but that restoration hasn't happened yet. Okay, so how do we know the difference between someone? So I think the Bible isn't actually too concerned with the difference of splitting, oh, this is mental illness, which maybe they didn't have much awareness of. And this is like a physical illness and this is a spiritual illness. They were all overlapping. And you see that in the miracles over and over again, like the, the, the paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof. Uh, instead of just healing him, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And when your sins are forgiven, he gets up and walks. And so they're like, it's just inter it's intertwined. So trying to answer this question for the modern era, to some extent, mental health is just a sign that things are not all well spiritually. And that doesn't mean that that person has a spiritual issue that they need to sort out. It's just saying that things aren't right. Um, and when they are right, both the spiritual and the mental and the physical will be right. That, that kind of comes a bit later. So I think the, that question is a question for our culture. How do we tell the difference? And that's just a question of maybe the primary cause. So I think the primary cause in a lot of cases of mental health is probably just mental health. In some cases, it might be spiritual issues. Um, but they're always, in the Bible, they're always intermixed. And in reality, they're intermixed. But I guess we're just really trying to figure out the primary cause in those cases. So there's no clean answer. I hope that kind of... Next question. So does this passage indicate that uh, Jesus had to try and manage his fame as well as yeah, focusing on his ministries? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think there's some... There's some so there's, there's this theme of secrecy in Mark. All throughout, he tells more and more people, don't, don't tell anyone that I'm... Uh, well, it tells the demons, don't, don't spread the news. Tells this guy, don't spread the news. Mm. Eventually, when Peter figures out he's the Christ, he says, don't spread the news. Um, so there's this theme of secrecy in uh, Mark, which really um, finds its culmination in the very... Not the, uh, the second last chapter, chapter 15, um, it, it kind of all builds up to this one moment, which I won't spoil because <laughs> like, I'll preach it at that time. But, yeah, it does seem like Jesus wants to contain his godliness to some extent, which is where the idea of the uncontainable God came from because he's trying to contain and saying, don't tell, don't tell. But it's like it just his godliness just comes out, his compassion comes out, his power comes out, it just leaks out in different ways. Um, so, yeah, I think Jesus, there, there's probably some practical reasons for not telling. Otherwise, it's just like too many people. 
Um, and there's definitely some theological reasons as well. And like, that'll come out by the end of the series. And then the final question on Padlet, can you expand on how the cross connects to the gospel of God? Yeah, yeah, okay. So that's the, I'm guessing that's the thing that I mentioned at the start where we have a narrow view of the gospel, which is just to say that it's Jesus dying and rising for our sins. Um, but this, the start of the passage kind of blows that apart because Jesus hasn't died, he hasn't risen, he hasn't told anyone that's what he's doing, and yet he's preaching the gospel. Um, so, the gospel, so gospel just means good news, and probably most people here know that. Um, so the, the good news of God for the Israelites, say, was that God would return. Like they were abandoned to exile, they were facing the punishment for the sins, but the gospel or the good news for the Israelites was that God would return. And that's the good news that John the Baptist was preaching when he came at first. If you remember, he quoted Isaiah saying, um, make way for the Lord, God's coming basically. After me, God comes. And so that was the good news at that time. And when Jesus comes, we see a development in that good news. It's not a change, it's still the same good news. But saying now Jesus is here. So God is here. That's the new good news. God is here. Repent and believe. God's right here. Um, and then when we get to the cross, which is like the ultimate example of the good news, um, we, I think in our kind of Christian tradition, we lose it and just say the good news is now that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. But no, it's the same good news. God's coming. And the cross then is... The, the way that God comes. It's the thing that enables God to be here and enables us to be with God, enables his kingdom to come. Because when Jesus dies and rises on the cross, that's the moment, and we'll hear about this later as well, that's the moment when the curtain in the temple tears. And we all know that, well, I don't know, sorry, I shouldn't say we all know. Many Christians are aware that that temple curtain tearing is, uh, is symbolic for entrance into God's holy place. And entrance out, and God coming out. So if you put it in that bigger framework, Jesus' death and resurrection does save us, but it's not about saving us. It's about bringing God into the world. It tears the curtain apart so that God can come out into the world fully. That's what happens on the cross. Not we're just saved, which is a, a small sliver of good news. And it's really good news for us. But the bigger and the better thing is that God's like, God's kingdom is here. It's come into the world. And now we're a part of that, or, or we have access to it. And then you see his kingdom in Acts take over the world, right? Expands, and more people come to him. So that's kind of what I was saying when I was trying to get across that. The death and resurrection isn't about God saving you. It's, like, it's much bigger than that. Death and resurrection is like God saving us is just like the smallest part of the good news um, and not even the best part. The best part's like God's here and you can be with God. All right, thanks, Matt. <laughs> thanks, no questions.